Well, thank you so much. The Lord has been glorified. The people have been blessed. And uh, we are grateful for that. I think probably all of us would agree that the church does not have the influence in America today that it once had. Dave Olson wrote The Church in Crises, and he said church attendance is unchanged from 15 years ago, while our population has grown by 52 million people. We live in a world that is post-Christian, post-modern, and multi-ethnic. When I think about the church today, it seems to me in some ways we have lost our way, unsure of our identity, our purpose. Are we here as the church to reflect society or are we here to change society? If we say that we are here to change society, then we are immediately criticized as being out of the mainstream, as being Neanderthals. It seems to me that we also are somewhat confused concerning doctrine. Salvation, how is a person saved today? How does, how does a person become right with God today? Is it only through Jesus Christ? Is that the exclusive way of salvation? Or are there many ways of salvation and one religion's about as good as another? We also seem to be confused about morality. Those things at one time that were considered to be immoral today are considered as acceptable and actually in our society are promoted. For the next few weeks, I want us to go back to the book of Acts and look at the New Testament church at the pattern there so that we might learn at least what the Bible intended for the church to be. Now, before we get to our text today, I, I want to mention three fundamental facts concerning the church. First of all, the church is spiritual, not political. Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. So Jesus told us very plainly as he established the church that the church was spiritual, not political. However, that does not mean that the people of God should not be involved in the political arena. As a matter of fact, I think that we have many of the issues we are facing today because we have abdicated our responsibility to be involved. Secondly, the church is universal, not provincial. Now, I say that because so often our view of the church is extremely narrow. And we reject so much because the styles are different, not the message. Thirdly, the church is eternal, not temporal. Jesus said his kingdom will have no end. So today, let's look at the establishment of the church. Take your Bibles, look with me. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. We're going to read through verse number 4, but we're going to refer to the entire chapter. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Now, what are the characteristics of the New Testament church? Let's go back to the establishment of the church here in Acts chapter 2. What are the characteristics of the church that Jesus established? Well, first of all, the Bible says that they were united in Christ. There in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. So they were united in place. Did you notice that they said that they were all together in one place? The word all that is used there means absolutely all. They were all united in one place. Well, that lets me know that when Jesus established the church, it was not a Baptist church. Because we are never all together in anything. Someone said, if you have four Baptists, there are two potential churches. There might be four potential churches. But when Jesus established the church, the Bible says that they were all together in one place. They had come together. They assembled. Now, according to Gallup's poll, 41% of Americans attend church. The demographics is somewhat interesting to me because according to Pew Research, they said that 34% of high school dropouts attend church and 44% of those with college degrees attend church. But when I look at the church, when it was established, the scripture says that they were all together united in place. They were also united in ministry. If you look in verse number 44, it says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Barnes wrote, They were united in the same community or engaged in the same thing. Now, when I look at the New Testament church, when it was established, It seems to me that self was secondary and others were primary, which is the opposite of what we often have in the church today. Self was secondary, others were primary. Well, today in so many of the churches, it's the other way around. I am primary and others are secondary. So if I don't get my way about something... If things don't work out the way I want them to, then I begin another church or I go to another church or whatever. In fact, that's the reason there are so many interesting names in churches. Have you ever noticed how many New Harmony Baptist churches there are? That means there was no harmony in Old Harmony Baptist Church. Or New Hope Baptist Church, which means there was no hope in the other church. But when I look at the church, when it was established, they were united in ministry. Others were primary, and I was secondary. They were united in fellowship in verse 46. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The fellowship in the church that Jesus established transcended all divisions. What is it that unites us in the church today? You think about you, well, it's not, it's not ministry that unites us. Because some people are very passionate about this ministry and the Lord has led them to that ministry and others might be passionate about another ministry, but it is not ministry that unites us. What is it? Is it music? As a matter of fact, music might be the greatest divider in the church. I remember when Steve came here, started changing things. I asked him not to. 
we would have service on Sunday morning and every Monday morning my office looked like Baskin Robbins. People would come in, take a number to come in and complain. I agreed with them. <laughs> One person came in and said, you, you need to understand because Steve had put in new music, began to establish an orchestra and those kinds of things. And one person came in and said, you need to understand that we are a traditional church and we like traditional music. And I said, what tradition? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, are you talking about a Latin tradition or an African tradition? What tradition are you talking about? And the person said, you know what I mean. And I said, I do. You're talking about, you know, Christianity's been around for 2,000 years. You're talking about a hundred-year slice of Christianity. And the music that was written during that period is traditional and acceptable. And you discard 1,900 years of Christianity. There was agreement, but we did not agree. Music does not unite us. Membership does not unite us. We can belong to the church and not be united. What unites the church? Because the New Testament church was united. What unites us? Prayer. Look over at chapter 1, verse number 14. It says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. One mind. Continually devoting themselves to prayer. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Folks, we are united on our knees. It is when we are before the Lord, it's when we come together in honest prayer that we are united. That brings us together prayer. Something else I believe that unites the church is a common vision. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the story is told about some prophets who wanted to build a school and they got excited about that vision. They were talking to Elisha and they said, Elisha, we are going to build a school. Why don't you come and join us? And he got excited about it and they all got together. Folks, it's when we share a common vision that we are united because the vision must come from the Lord. And then fellowship unites us. You'll notice again in verse number 46 of our text. He said they were breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. You would have enjoyed being a part of that church. The Bible says that there was gladness. The word literally means to jump with joy gladness in that church. Billy Graham said Christianity was never meant to be something to make people miserable but rather to make them happy. You know the problem with some of us is we got enough religion to, to be miserable about it. Well then you just don't have enough. You, you need, the Bible says that there was gladness, that they were jumping with joy and sincerity of heart. Barnes says this means with a sincere and pure heart, they were satisfied and thankful. When I look at the New Testament church, they were united in Christ. When I look at the New Testament church, I see that they were submitted to the Word of God. Look at verse number 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. When the church was submitted, was established, they submitted themselves to the Word of God, which stands in contrast to what seems to be man's natural rebellious nature. Would you not agree? I mean, when a baby is born, as cute as these little fellows were up here, whenever they were born, their first word is not mama. Their first word is not daddy. Their first word is 
No. We are born, it seems, with that rebellious nature. As a matter of fact, we rebel against legitimate governmental authority. Speed limit. Linda and I were going out at um, Sand Hills the other day. If you've been out there on Clemson Road, you come up on Clemson Road, you know, and you come to the light, and I got over on the left-hand side to turn in. Those lights last about 12 minutes each. You know, they, they, they don't respond to a car being there or not being there. They just, and so I'm sitting there. And after a while, I, I began to look around. There was not a car within 17 miles. And I'm looking to see if there's anyone around. Linda said, no, you're not. She said, I know. I know what you're thinking and you're not going to do it. But it just made no sense to me to sit there and no one is around waiting patiently. And I felt stupid doing it. Just sitting there waiting for a light to change so I could go when there was no one around. But we have that rebellious nature. And we also rebel against scriptural authority through our non-compliance. Why is authority so important? Because it provides us with order. It provides us with stability. If there is order, if there is submission, then there is order. We have to submit to things in order for there to be order in our lives. Augustine said that he submitted himself to the word of God and his life was changed. Martin Luther submitted himself to the word of God and declared, here I stand, regardless as to the circumstances, regardless as to what anyone else does. He said, I am standing on the word of God. May I ask you, what is the authority in your life? What is the authority in your life? Because as a believer, the authority of our lives is supposed to be the Word of God. We stand on the Word. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a considerable amount of problems today because we have strayed from the Word of God. As the people of God, what the Word says is truth. And we stand on it. They were submitted to the word of God. They were committed to the Lord. In verse number 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, it, when the church was established, they understood that Jesus was the Lord of the church. Church does not belong to the pastor. It does not belong to the deacons. It does not belong to the council. It does not belong to the congregation. It is the Lord's church. The Bible says that they understood that it was the Lord's church. And he was approved by God. In verse number 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You see, the Bible says that the church belongs to the Lord and God confirmed his authority through the miracles that he did. When Jesus healed the sick, it was with the power of the Father. And that confirmed who he was. When the ten lepers came to him and he healed them, that was the power of God confirming who he was. When Jesus fed the hungry, 
taking five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding the hungry. It was God confirming who he was. It was within the power of God. When Jesus raised the dead, it was God's confirmation of who he was. He called Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. The son of the widow of Nain, he called back to life. So the Bible says that Jesus was approved by God. He was crucified by man in verse number 23. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The Bible says those he loved crucified him. It was predetermined by God. The death of Jesus was predetermined by God. In fact, the Bible says that before the foundations of the world, God had planned for your salvation. Before he created the world, he planned for your salvation. And almost immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, God had foretold us that he was going to send a Messiah. So the Bible says that God had planned for our salvation through Jesus. The Bible says that he died for us, not for himself in Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So the Bible says that Jesus then was approved by God. He was crucified by man. He was raised up by God in verse number 24. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The one who was crucified by man was raised by God. Can you imagine, and, and I hope you do sometimes, just to imagine what happened when Jesus was crucified? Well, I think there was a celebration in hell. All the demons were celebrating. Finally, he was dead. Finally, it was done. Finally, he was ended. Finally, it was gone. There was a celebration in hell, but the rest of the story is that on Easter morning, God raised him up. Can you imagine the emotions of those who came to the cemetery on that first Easter and heard the words, he is not here, he is risen. We serve a living Lord. The one that man crucified, the Bible says that God raised him up, thus he is adored by believers in verse number 25. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that may not be shaken, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope. Folks, those who know Jesus love Jesus. Those who know him. They love him because he first loved us. The song says, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. There are people who care for me. There are people who care for you. But there is no one who cares for me like Jesus. We love him because he loved, first loved us. We love him because of his sufficiency. I mean, he is sufficient for every need you have. I know that there are a myriad of needs out there today. And he is sufficient for every need you have. And he satisfies the longing of our heart. Jesus said in John 10, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Jesus came to give you life and give you an abundant life. I don't understand those people who are Christians and they are so miserable. I don't know what they got. I don't want it, but I don't know what they got. 
Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. So when I look at the New Testament church, they were committed to the Lord Jesus. It wasn't Jesus and some other messiahs. It was Jesus. They were committed to Jesus. And then they were witnesses of Christ in verse number 32. The Bible says this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. I believe when he is your savior, you can't help but speak of him. The apostles did. In Acts chapter 5, verse number 28, you recall that the apostles were brought before the authorities because they were creating such a commotion in his name. And they were told not to speak anymore in his name. Don't say anything else about this man. You're causing all kinds of problems for us. Don't speak about him anymore. And the Bible says that they went out and turned the world upside down for Jesus. They, they spoke about him. Ladies and gentlemen, if you know Jesus, you speak of Jesus. Can you keep quiet if you know him? I mean, you, you have grandchildren and children. Do you keep quiet about those? No. Well, can you keep quiet about Jesus if you know Jesus? And the answer is no, not if you know Jesus. I was watching uh, two or three weeks ago on uh, Governor Huckabee's show, and he had a couple of women on there who were from Iran. They were Christians. And as a result of their faith, they had been arrested and imprisoned. They were put in prison because they were committed to Christ. Now, there were a lot of people, Christians from around the world, that wrote complaining, which ultimately led to their release. But when Governor Huckabee was interviewing them, he said, if if you would have denied your faith in Christ, would you have been released? And their reply was, yes, if we were to renounce our faith, then they would have released us. And he said, well, then why did you not? And they responded, we know him. We have talked with him. We have experienced him. We could not deny him. If you know Jesus, you cannot deny Jesus. If you know Jesus, you witness of Jesus. And that is our responsibility, but unfortunately, it is a neglected responsibility. Jim Cimbala wrote the book, Fresh Power, and he discusses the failure of the church to witness. And he said that instead of witness, he said, we retreat from the world. And, 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 you know, I thought about that. We retreat from the world, and we do. He said, we stand on the sidelines and say, isn't it horrible what they're doing out there? And then we retreat to our safe havens. How many times when we are challenged do we retreat? Rather than witness, rather than talk about Jesus, we retreat from the danger. He said, we condemn the world. It is easier for us to condemn the world. Oh, isn't that awful? It's easier for us to condemn the world rather than confront the world with the gospel. And we have embraced worldliness. The truth is, the world has evangelized the church rather than the church evangelizing the world. That's a sad truth. We have been evangelized by the world when Jesus put us here to evangelize the world. They were witnesses of Christ. And then they were filled with the Spirit in verse number 17. 
The Bible says, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. In the New Testament church, they experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. It says in Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. When I look at that, the Bible says in that first church that they assembled together, they prayed, the place was shaken, which signifies the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that they were filled with the Spirit and they became witnesses of Jesus. We desperately need a legitimate filling of the Holy Spirit within the church today. Really do. Jim Simbola in his book says there are two excesses regarding the Holy Spirit. And I I suppose they are things that scare us away. He said, first of all, if you ignore the Holy Spirit, then you become a spiritual cemetery. Similar wrote, the degree to which we understand and experience the Spirit of God will be the exact degree to which God's plan for our churches will be accomplished. He said, if we ignore the Holy Spirit, then we become a spiritual cemetery. If we abuse the Holy Spirit, he said, then we become an insane asylum. Similar wrote, when people bark like dogs, laugh like hyenas, roar like lions, and chirp like birds in the Spirit... Someone needs to lift a voice and say, where is this found in the Bible? And how does it edify the congregation? We need a filling of the Holy Spirit in power, not as a circus. Let me conclude. When I go back to the New Testament church as it was established there in Acts chapter 2, The Lord established his church, so I assume this is what he wants us to be. That's what he established. First of all, united in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we are brothers and sisters if we know the Lord. We're family. Regardless as to what denominational label you might wear, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, then we are brothers and sisters in the Lord with God as our Father. Secondly, they were submitted to the Word of God. It is the Word of God that should instruct us and on which we must stand. The Word of not, not popular opinion, not what is politically correct. We must stand on the Word of God. Three, we must be committed to the Lord. We're not to be a reflection of the world as the people of God. We are to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. So we're committed to the Lord. We're witnesses of Christ. We tell others about Jesus and what he means to us and be filled with the Spirit. Billy Graham years ago was preaching a crusade in England. When the reports came out, they said of Dr. Graham that his message had set the church back 50 years. He replied, then I have failed. Because I wanted to set back the cause of religion 2,000 years. We need to go back and be a New Testament church. A church that is committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Standing on the word of God. Loving each other. I trust we will. 
Our Father in God, we come to a time of examination and invitation, asking that the Holy Spirit examine our lives, our commitments, and Lord, that we will be standing on the Word of God, committed to the Lord Jesus, loving each other. I pray for those who have never come to know Christ, that today they might be drawn to Him. I pray, Father, for those who who are looking for a church home, that they'd feel comfortable with us. Bless this invitation time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation. If you're here without Christ, would you commit your life to Him today? You'll never regret it. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, they sing, You Come, I'll Greet You Should Do.